Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today we got our returning guests, Joseph Sabo and Nate Peterson. And Patterson. Patterson. I said Patterson first, then you said to say Peterson. No, I said Nate, not Nate. No, I said Nate Patterson. You... I'm going to blame you. Leave this sure. in. Don't we, edit this we out. We got it recorded. I love you. We yep. got it recorded. <laughs> leave it in. You're on recording. <laughs> we leave it in? No, I got to leave, leave it in. Leave it in. Leave it in. Leave it in. It's good stuff. Ugh. It's raw and unedited. It's the best. Yeah. Ugh, raw and unedited. Don't Maybe know we can talk about how Chris wrecked this on the last one. <laughs> oh. like, like, I am incompetent today, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my incompetence. Did you ever drive made you dumb? <laughs> All right, so, so today we're going to be doing our part two on the Divine Council, the, the Unseen Realm, and Dr. Michael Heiser. And he wrote the book, The Unseen Realm, and it's about God's Divine Council. Yahweh is in a council room. He's surrounded by his subordinates, different divine agents, and they offer advice. They give him input, and then he tasks them with going to fulfill his will. We talked about a little bit about Psalms 82, where we see this, First Kings 22, where we see this, Job 1, where we see this. And now we're going to kind of talk about what his ideas are about predestination and the state of the future. So when I was listening to uh, the audio of The Unseen Realm, Michael Heiser, he, he, said, he talked basically like a Molinist. He says... That uh, God has all the plans determined, but he allows his creatures to determine the paths to those end games, to those end states. And that's how he says that he, he avoids all the problems of how can God know something in the future but not be responsible for the evil. And uh, personally, I don't, I don't think Molinism is a very good solution, and he kind of glosses over it. Just he just kind of states that the problem goes away when it really doesn't because it drives all sorts of additional questions. But that's his solution. He says uh, God determines the end, like a king Ahab, God wanted dead, and then he allowed different creatures to propose different solutions, and then those creatures carried out those solutions. So that way God could determine the end and not be responsible for any of the acts in the middle, which... I don't know if I buy. Yeah, he, um, I don't know how familiar he is with Molinism as a term. I haven't, has he used that? Do you know? No, I haven't heard him use that word at okay. all. But his theology, the way he describes it, is close to that for sure. Um, at least in Arminian perspective, that adheres to middle knowledge in order to answer. The whole like Kila situation in Samuel, right. where David goes, "Hey God, if I go to Kila, um, are they going to hand me over <laughs> to Solomon, or not Solomon, Saul?" And he's like, "Yep." And he's like, "Okay, not going." <laughs> which right. which is really funny because we got at Michael Heiser. He has one article in which he addresses open theism, and he says, "This is my input to the open theist debate." And he says, "Go look at the Kila incident with uh, Saul and David, and here's God." And he's telling David what will happen if certain events happen. And from that, from that, he concludes that God knows every single possibility in every single distant possible world for all of eternity, which 
Does does that imply that at all? I mean, can't God just look at who the people are in the city and, and give King David inside intelligence about how loyal they are to David? I mean, it doesn't take a genius to do that. I mean, uh, David could have sent spies in the city and probably got the same information. And we see a parallel text. We see a parallel text to this incident in the person of Abram. Abram and Sarai, or Abraham and Sarah, um, he says, you know, if we go into the city, they're going to look at my wife. And guess what? My wife's a pretty lady. And so they're going to kill me and they're going to marry her. And so I'm going to choose not to go do that. This doesn't mean that Abraham has exhaustive knowledge of all possible, possible events that could ever happen. It just doesn't mean that. It just means that he knows people, people he doesn't even, he's never met these people. He just knows the general characteristics of these people and is able to make informed decisions about how they're going to act based on pre-existing knowledge. And it, it doesn't take a genius. Yeah, and here we uh sort of lacking in the distinction between present knowledge and future knowledge. So all it would take in order for Yahweh to sufficiently answer David's question uh, would be present knowledge of the current situation. So if you try to take that and parlay that into some sort of exhaustive omniscience of all future events, it just doesn't work. The only way that you get there is, is you have to presuppose exhaustive knowledge of all future events and then bring that back into the text. I mean, let's, let's look at other stuff too here, because obviously there's a tension here with Saul pursuing David, and obviously the people of Kila would know that Saul's pretty ticked off, and he's looking intently and just going after David, and the whole thing is like, you're caught almost like in the middle of a war, and what are you going to do? Are you going to obey the king and hand this person over as considered a refugee? Or, you know, or uh, not a refugee, but um, what's the word I'm talking about here? Starts with an R. I'm stupid. I'm sorry. No, I run away, whatever it is, rebellious person um, that's against, not a against rebel? Saul, but Saul's in pursuit of rebel. There you go, rebel. <laughs> rebel, you said rebellious rebel. person. Rebel was the word you're looking for? <laughs> I, I was thinking of some exotic, like, 16-syllable. like, what? What's the $20 word here? He's a rebel. And obviously, Kila is going to want to be submissive towards Saul, who's king, and it's obvious that they're in a state there, and God can just know the hearts of these people and be like, these people are freaking out about this situation. David, if you go there, you're toast. And David's like, thanks for the FYI, God. I'm out. Deuces. Guess what I'm not doing, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and it's funny. I mean, uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, he's usually a fairly, he's a clever guy. He's intelligent, he's able to read, and he's able to understand text, and he's usually very careful. And he's careful about understanding implications and thinking through counter-arguments. And it's almost like he didn't even try when he's addressing open theism. That's what it feels like to me, that he didn't, didn't even try, which uh, leads me to believe, is it purposeful? Is he trying to still remain kosher in certain circles? If he took up open theism, would he be going too far? I don't Maybe know. He's just dismissive. I don't know. I know. Um, well, go ahead. He's also part of ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society, which outright object oh, is yeah. an objection to open theism, as we know with the Clark Pinnock. Yeah, they and, read uh, Clark. Yeah. And what's the guy's name? Pinnock and John Sanders issue. Yeah. And so they have to sign basically this document 
which is saying, yeah, I agree with the Chicago statement of inerrancy because that's what ETS's basic parameters are. So if you adhere to that, then you basically have to ultimately reject open theism. And so he is a card-carrying member of ETS and SBL, which SBL, you can open theism and SBL. But ETS is the big one. And so that's where all the conservatives go. So if he actually wanted to be an open theist, he probably couldn't be a part of ETS, which is why he may have reservations against him to hold his card membership. That is just crazy to me. That means, you know, these societies, they're going to be excluding people like uh, Walter Bergerman and mm-hmm. Terrence Freethium. It's, it's, it's like you're going to exclude these people who are biblical scholars and very detailed and, and knowledgeable, and they believe the text. They believe the text, and you're they're, you're getting excluded because they don't uh, up, up, uphold some obscure ideology that's not specifically laid out in the Bible. It's not specifically described as being a fundamental attribute. And, and none of these ancient Israelites believed it. Did that mean they were all pagan and hell destined and heretics? You don't. We don't find that anywhere. Nowhere. This is a modern invention that they impose on Christianity, and they exclude people who disagree with them. Yep. I have a good friend. He's a professor at Cal Baptist University, Old Testament professor, um, uh, majoring, or his primary focus is the minor prophets. And I've talked to him about scholars like Walter Bergerman, and, he's, and he basically just says Walter Bergerman is like a hack, basically. He's a, and, he's and, a hack? And, uh, yeah. He's like, you know, he... he He's, he's, he told me that that Old Testament theology book primarily is based upon the theology of some feminist <laughs> Old Testament girl that says God is just an angry demon that wants to punch everybody in the face and kill them, and that we can't worship him, and that Bergerman is basically working that book off of like that thesis or something. Like that. And I'm like, I've read the part of the book. I'm like, I don't see that anywhere in there whatsoever. So, and I, especially when it comes to things like you know, not to get too crazy like the new perspective on paul it seems like there's a lot of these guys that are in these positions that haven't actually read the material they just get like a little summary from a buddy of theirs that might have read a book or two and then they all just run with it <laughs> so it's, it's pretty, right like the, the whole right. academic circle is kind of some guys are way too um aloof i think to be even commenting on certain things yeah like nt right uh Denies the reformed interpretation of justification, ergo he is a heretic and wrong. <laughs> without yeah. ever, without ever reading one of the I don't know twenty books that he's written, you know. I read them all. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. Anti N.T. Wright doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, Terence Frettheum doesn't know what he's talking about. Walter Bergman doesn't know what he's talking about. It's it's like oh come on people. Grow up. Just engage with the ideas. Engage with the ideas. And, you know, uh, there's a debate between N.T. Wright and James White. And guess guess who wins? Guess who wins? N.T. Wright. Yeah, it's, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that wasn't a hard guess. <laughs> no, it wasn't yeah, even he close. Him. He wrecked him hard. Yeah, he did. But he was he was gentlemanly about it, too. But um, back to Heiser, I know that uh, we had tried to get him to debate Chris either – um, through um, a mail system, or not a mail system, but like an email system, right? And he was completely against that. And it seemed like his only uh, rebuttal was that foreknowledge does not necessitate predestination. So he seems to believe that 
open theists deny the foreknowledge of God because we deny the predestination of God. And that's not my, I don't care. I mean, it's, is, is that why I'm an open theist? Because I don't want some sort of predestination? No. Maybe some, some open theists. Not me. I actually believe that predestination is possible as an open theist. But yeah. what I don't do is I don't take those specific instances in the in the scripture that maybe I'll give you as predestination and translate that to an entire modus operandi for God and how he operates with every human throughout the entirety of history. You know, it's not without beyond the realm of possibility that, uh, you know, those first Christians were preordained to eternal life in order to ensure that the gospel got where it needed to go and got the jump start that it needed to get. Now, I'm not saying that that's the case, but I'm saying that's not outside the realm of possibility. And that's a pretty normal interpretation. But what they would do with that passage in Acts, most people, is they would say, well, therefore everyone that ever comes to know God was preordained to do such before the foundations of the earth. And I just don't see that because we have choice all throughout the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I'll actually want to read that text just in case listeners aren't familiar with it. Uh, it's in Acts 13, um, starting around uh, verse 48, but the context starts in verse 44, and I'm reading from the NRSV, and that says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and blasphemy. They contradicted what was spoken by Paul. Then both Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken first to you, since you reject it and judge yourselves to be unworthy of eternal life. That's a key that's a key phrase there. We are now turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have set you to be a light for the Gentiles, so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And here's the text, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and praised the word of the Lord, and as many as had been destined for eternal life became believers. Thus, the word of the Lord spread throughout the region. So I was There's th- obvious compare and contrast there. They rejected salvation for themselves, and then that the Gentiles were like, "Hey, we believe." They were disposed to believe. And if you if you look at the context, you look at the Greek. Uh, that's a middle verse. That's that's a middle verb. As many predisposed themselves, as many predestined themselves, those are the ones who believed. And yep, it's exactly. it's an arbitrary translation to not have it middle. Whereas a previous verse, one you just read, that was they judged themselves unworthy. That's that's reflexive. That's middle. And uh, but the predestination, uh, they translated differently. Mm-hmm. Same tense. Exactly. I think the one thing that Heiser talks about that I actually really agree with him on is that election does not necessitate salvation. They're not synonymous. That you have Israel that was God's elect peace people, but salvation was based upon faith, which is always what the entire Bible is about. Whether you have faith in the one true God or you don't. And there's not going to be Baal worshippers in heaven just because, and the Jews believe this, if they were children of Abraham, they were going to be saved. But then you have Jesus refuting them on that and, it's, and, it, and at one point uh, he was in the temptation in the wilderness um, what was it temptation in the wilderness? I'm probably having a brain fart here it's okay, where one of the texts says that God could take these stones and raise children I think it was an axe, could raise children out of them for Israel that's John the right Baptist, uh, Matthew 3 I believe yeah yeah. I had a brain fart, sorry <laughs> <laughs> do not say that you have Abraham for your father 
Yeah, and that was a common claim, and uh, Paul refutes that. And Paul says, uh, yep. you know, it, it's not based on your lineage. He says there's there's uh, people inside of Israel who are of Israel, and there's people outside of Israel. Gentiles can be grafted in, and and the Jews can be excluded. And he's saying it's not based on your heritage. It's based on, you know, your actions. It's important to understand these terms of what predestination and election actually mean without having a Calvinist trying to shove it down your throat that God, from a, you know, super lapsarianistic view of things, or infralapsarianistic view of things, which I don't know if you guys know those words, like I God's do. decree was either before he created all things or before the fall or after the fall. But it's like election doesn't have anything to do with salvation. Election just has choice where God chooses someone. He wants to use him. He's electing them to use him. It does nothing to do with their salvation. Right. So Heiser would say that Israel is the elect of God in that they were chosen to know the truth about God and receive the law and be a light to the Gentiles. They were elected for a purpose. They were not individually chosen or corporately chosen chosen uh, to salvation. So Heiser is pretty good on most of how he treats the New Testament. He doesn't treat it in a Calvinistic fashion, and he tries to refute the Calvinist proof text. I was just reading uh, him on original sin, and he's talking about better ways to take that, whereas the sin is in, not not based on being passed down genetically, but due to the person's own sin. And he, he talks about those verses as well. So he, he's not a Calvinist, and he doesn't really talk like a Calvinist, but he wants to adopt these neo-Molinist ideas when coming to the Bible. And it could be it could be because he doesn't want to alienate certain people. It could be. Maybe he just hasn't read God of the Possible. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Hey, that's a good one, bro. Did you, you said you wanted to bring in N.T. Wright? Or, uh... well, I don't know that we can yeah. do that in 15 minutes. I guess we could. We could just do a brief yeah, why he's wrong about everything. Why N.T. Wright's no. wrong about everything. Yeah. I think I think N.T. Wright's theology is perfect <clears throat> for an open theistic framework. It is, because he <clears throat> accentuates, first of all, God's, Yahweh's relationality towards us and also our personal responsibility for the world that we live in. That's one of the great things that I love about N.T. Wright. And despite what you might want to say about his views on justification and covenant, um, the way that he accentuates the individual responsibility of the follower of Christ now in order to make a difference in this earth and not just sort of punch out while we're in this meat sack until we die and go live in heaven somewhere, you know, in our mansion. After the rapture. After the rapture is wonderful, you know. And I think... I think some of that theology sort of falls at the wayside with some of the other people that tend to focus more on his contrary to popular you know, views of justification and covenant and whatnot. Um, but for me, you know, within the open, open theist framework, because within the open theist framework, you know, it's really the only paradigm wherein our decisions actually matter. You know, every other paradigm, whether I, you know serve my brother in the Lord or whether I feed this homeless person, whatever happens is going to happen, you know, but within the open view, what we as individuals do actually affects the world around us. And he really touches on that very well. So I think it's good. And the day the revolution began that Wright actually talks about that specific thing in the old Testament and how like the atonement is not some penal substitutionary atonement there, but 
there's a lot of different views in here that talk about law, that talk about sacrifice, and it's kind of like it reminds me of his take on First Thessalonians four seventeen, where that is usually the rapture passage, where it's like Paul is stringing together a lot of different ideas of what the second coming looks like, and N.T. Wright is using all these different views that are, are painting these different pictures of what Christ's atonement looks like according to the scriptures, because there's verses that say he was crucified according to the scriptures, and he lays out and sketches out what that looks like, and it totally eradicates a penal substitutionary atonement view of things, but more of like Jesus' atonement was about reconciling us, restoring us to the priesthood we were called to be a part of, to be ambassadors and steward of the creation, because God wants to work through us and in us, just like the divine council, where he works in and through them to bring about his will and his purposes, but obviously because of volitional creatures, those things get thwarted from time to time also. Absolutely. I think uh, if you take N.T. Wright, uh, you take Richard Milton, you take Michael Heiser, you put them all together, you you get this beautiful convergence on very open theistic takes on the biblical text. Uh, it's, it's a take that takes the text seriously. You know, you could add like a Walter Bergman to that mix as well. It's a text that takes the text seriously, that cares about what it's communicating, cares about who was reading it and what they would think about that text. And it really, it's, it's all open theistic. It just fits open theism so well as systematically if you're trying to understand just how the Bible works. And so that's that's one of the great things about uh, the Richard Middleton's, the Heiser's. They're almost open theists. And uh, N.T. Wright was asked by T.C. Moore. Kurt Willems. T.C. Moore. No? It was Kurt Willems. Kurt Willems on his Pangea blog specifically asked him if he was an open theist. And N.T. Wright said... No. Well, I'm I'm talking about there's a there's a Rachel Held Evans, Rachel Evans yeah. uh, ask uh, ask me anything type deal, and T C Moore posted, "Are you an open theist?" and and N T Wright's response was, "You know, that's like an American category. That's an American concern, and uh, you know, people who are serious about theology, they don't they don't say, oh, I'm a Calvinist and." I'm an open theist because those are just kind of like childish terms that kind of muddy the waters for serious scholarship. And so a lot of these people who, like the Richard Milton's of the world, he's not going to say he's an open theist. And what was his reason? Because you're, if you're accepting these labels, you might be accepting a whole host of theology that you don't want attributed to you. And then you're like citing, you're, you're just, you know, creating, you're joining a clique of people. You know, and that, that's what N.T. Wright's answer really, you know, that, that, that's, that's what his answer felt like to me. was, I don't, I don't want to be associated with this label, but I'm not ruling it out. And it's just a petty concern. I bet we could yeah. get um, Heiser and Wright to work together on a systematic theology and not tell them what the <laughs> title is. And then afterwards just stamp it, you know, the open view. The open view. <laughs> That would be really funny. I don't know. Heiser, uh, sometimes he likes to mix in uh, perfect bean theology. And I noticed this in his book, Unseen Realm, where he he talks about God's perfection and agents' perfections and how that works. And that seems, it's it's very speculative and it's it's out of character for him because usually it's it's all textually focused. But sometimes he goes off on this non-textually focused stuff. 
that's where he brings in a lot of speculation. You guys notice that at all? Yeah, he he uses a lot of the stuff too, where like because God's a perfect being that he can do whatever he wants whenever he wants, and it just happens. And it's like, well, apparently he's not reading the same Bible we are, because there's a lot of things where God wants to do it and it doesn't happen. So, hey, bro. <laughs> Yeah, so he kind of wants his cake and he wants to eat it too. He wants to accept all these classical views, um, perfect being theology. And and the perfect being theology just means it's usually when the Bible uses the term perfect, Job is perfect. That means uh, Job is righteous. Abraham has perfect in his generations. That means he's, he's lived righteously. And that just means righteousness, usually in the Bible. But the perfect being theology is you got to be the most powerful thing ever contemplated and nothing can thwart you in any way whatsoever and you can't you know there's no deficiencies that you could contemplate and it's it's just weird theology and it's not part of old testament it, it doesn't that doesn't mean it's not true it could be true but it's just not part of old testament theology that's just not how they thought about god yahweh in the old testament whether or not that's true or false So that, that's what I know. That's one of my criticisms of Michael Heiser when I'm reading his work is sometimes he'll like to do that. And uh, the, where he really shines is when he deals with the text, what the text means, um, what the different translations means, and what the Near Eastern concept is of these themes. I don't think, if, if pressed, Michael Heiser is not going to say that any of these other false religions, uh, Near East religions at the same time, None of them believed in perfect being theology. None of them were imposing those on the text. It's it's something we encounter when we come to the Bible. No one else is going to claim that any of these Greek religions uh, way back in the time of the Old Testament had perfect being theology. And I think that's pretty interesting. It's pretty telling that people are imposing that on the Bible where it does not belong. Because the biblical texts, they look a lot like all these other ancient Near Eastern texts. And if they're opposing perfect being theology on the Bible, why not these other texts? Yeah, I really appreciate how the how the ancient Near Eastern texts are actually really good touch points that the Bible seems to comment on and say, the reason a lot of people have these views is because this is a general view out here. So this is what this is how we interpret it in light of Scripture, knowing that Yahweh is the one true God and that Chemosh or Dagon or Ramon, Ramon or not, and and you know. It's it's nice to know that that stuff there and within the, I mean let's look at the past hundred years because of this information we've received um, and uncovered it's changed theology like the Reformation as as good as it might have been it's like Calvinism is basically obsolete now in light of having this information you know what I mean yet they try to just pass it off to the side or or you'll get some guys you know that are oh, some open theists that we may know that would say the ancient Near Eastern work is basically hogwash. Uh-oh. <laughs> Shots fired. Should <laughs> interpret. <laughs> and that uh, we shouldn't uh, rely on that in any way to help us uh, understand the Bible better. Yeah, well, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe we don't read the Bible in light of ancient Near East texts, but we should at least try to read the Bible for what it says and not be dismissive over common sense readings of what's going on there. You know, so if a, totally if a kid could read it and explain it to you, we shouldn't dismiss them out of hand. They, they might, the kid might be wrong. The kid might not understand idioms. Uh, the kid might not understand the culture of uh, ancient Israel. 
He could be wrong, but we should at least consider it as a possibility and not just reject it because we have our, our prior convictions that are overruling whatever some normal reader is going to read into the text. Yeah, the, the Bible is not a... Uh... It's not an Annie Oakley decoder ring where you got to get the key sent into you, and now you can finally understand it and make sense of it. You know, if if it was written in such a way, God help any of us. You know, but it is written so that we can we can accurately understand what the authors are trying to say. You know, authorial intent I think is the name of the game. And if you're gonna push anything past that and try to go to some sort of super secret double hidden will or whatnot. I don't know. That's for the birds. That's hogwash, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So imagine a, re- a religion gets started, Sorry. and the religion is focused around the Epic of Gilgamesh or something like that. And then they just start claiming the text doesn't mean what it says, and the text has this uh, spiritual meaning, and the text is describing this God that's never ever described in the text, and they just proof text out of that Epic of Gilgamesh for their beliefs. Everyone would think they're nuts. Everyone would think they're crazy, but modern Christians get a pass when they're coming to the Bible in almost the same manner. <clears throat> it's just they funny. have to read their Platonic thoughts on top of it in order to understand it, and that stuff is just spoon-fed us in the churches we go to. Now it's not in the text. <laughs> yeah, so if, if anyone else did what Christianity does to the Bible, they would be seen as complete lunatics. <laughs> we could do a podcast about that one time. <laughs> All right, so uh, we are about out of time. Do we have any concluding thoughts about this podcast? Um, go out and buy The Unseen Realm. Read it. Also, I Dare You Not to Bore Me with the Bible by Michael Heiser. He'll take all those really strange passages that make absolutely no sense to you, and he will explain them. And it's not always in the Divine Council framework. You're going to get explanations outside of that, especially if you are maybe leading a small group or a youth study or something, I would really recommend that as a primer. Read it, go through it, check it out, share some things. It's a really interesting book. It's like three bucks. So it is. And the chapters are two pages, three pages maybe. He'll hit you with a little bit of Hebrew every once in a while, but it'll be great. It's also, um, I picked up the 16 Second Scholar, part three, uh, that Heiser does, and it's a hundred little less than one minute reads on doctrine. And it reiterates a lot of the similar stuff, especially um, Leviticus and how the word sin offering in Leviticus 3 or 4 actually is better translated decontamination or purification offering. Because you get to Leviticus 18, the woman has a baby and she has to offer a sin offering because she's having like post, you know, birth, like uh, blood. And it's like, that's kind of ridiculous. And it's it's just basically because you're in sacred space, you offer the sacrifice in order to make yourself ritually pure to remain within sacred space because that's where God is. So it's mm-hmm. it's very enlightening. They're great books. Check them out. Yeah, the Nick podcast on Leviticus is the most insightful video I've ever, uh, insightful podcast I've ever listened to on Leviticus. And the the Bible Project done by Tim Mackey also has a video on Leviticus that explains it just as well, and it's got visual aids and it's, it's brilliant. All right, I would like to thank my guests today, Joe Sabo and Nate Patterson. Uh, if if you have any questions or comments on this podcast feel free to put them on the God is Open webpage or start a companion Facebook uh, thread on our God is Open Facebook page thank you for listening (laughs) 